Welcome to the study of God's Word, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, let's open our Bibles and study God's Word. The title of this message is Called for Worship. And back in Ephesians chapter 5, again in verse 15, it says that, See then that you walk circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise, redeeming the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Walking in the light means walking in wisdom. Paul here is encouraging us that we walk wisely, not as fools. Because this light was given to us, we should walk circumspectly or we should walk carefully. We should walk wisely and not as fools. Hebrews 12, 1 tells us that, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up. And let us run with endurance the race God has set before us. Paul's encouragement to us here is to walk wisely because there is a great cloud of witnesses that watch our every move. But to walk wisely, to walk circumspectly, carefully, not as a fool. He says, redeeming the time. There were two ancient Greek words used for time. One had the idea of simply of day upon day and hour upon hour. And the other had the idea of a definite portion of time, a time where something should happen. It is the difference between time and the time. The idea here that Paul has written is of the time. It's a definite season of opportunity that Christians must redeem. Redeeming the time. There's an opportunity that God has for us to redeem. This same word is translated opportunity in Galatians 6 verse 10. It says, therefore, whenever we have the opportunity, we should do good to everyone, especially to those in the family of faith. The wisest thing that we can do is to take every opportunity and to redeem that time specifically for the glory of God. Paul isn't telling us to make the most of every moment, even though that's good advice. He tells us to seize opportunity for the glory of Jesus. It isn't to make the most of time, but to make most, to make the most of the time. It's the little dash in between the time that we're born and the time you get to graduate into heaven. That little dash, Paul is telling us, seize that opportunity to redeem it because that is what walking in wisdom looks like. It's not just making an opportunity of every moment, but it's the actual redeeming of the time that we have. The idea behind redeeming the time is that you buy up the opportunities like a smart businessman would. You make the most of every opportunity the Lord will allow for your life. It's wise for us to take an account of every moment that we have. This is what the life of wisdom looks like. And he says this to walk in wisdom, to walk wisely, redeeming the time because the days 
are evil. And this is another reason why it is important to walk wisely. People are watching us, but also the days are evil. Jesus spoke of a time when many false prophets will rise up and deceive many. And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. And we see that in Matthew chapter 24, 11 through 12. And surely we can say that we are living in those times. These days are evil. Just a week ago, we wake up to the news of another shooting and another death and another grieving family, the loss of a husband, of a dad, of a son, of a brother. And we know with certainty that these days are evil. And so God is calling his church to redeem the time, to walk wisely in redeeming the time because these days are evil. And to understand what the will of the Lord is, this is what real wisdom is. It is the contrast of being unwise. Our main understanding of the will of the Lord comes from a good knowledge of his word. You guys ever, are you guys like me, you ever ask the question, God, what's your will for my life? You guys ever ask that question? I ask that question so much. God, what, what's your will? And I can give you the answer right now. If you're taking notes, write this down. The will of the Lord for your life is to be wise. It's simple. This is what the will of the Lord is. For you as a believer, to be wise. Not as to live your life as a fool, but to be wise and to redeem the time. Now in verse 18 what does, well, what does wisdom look like or what does being unwise look like? <clears throat> Back in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, it says, Do not be drunk with wine in which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. Walking in the light, walking in wisdom means a constant filling with the Holy Spirit. You want to live a life that is wise or full of wisdom? Then you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul says, do not be drunk with wine. In contrast with the conduct of the world, being drunk with wine, we are to be filled with the Spirit. And Paul's grammar here clearly says we're to be constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Christian life, the wise Christian life, is going to be constantly being filled with the Spirit, not fulfilling the lusts of the flesh, but walking in the wisdom of being filled with the Holy Spirit. He says to be filled with the Holy Spirit. The filling of the Holy Spirit is not a one-time event that we live off of the rest of our days, the rest of our life. It's a constant filling, asking to be filled and receiving the filling by faith. You know, did you wake up this morning asking God, God, fill me afresh and anew with your spirit today. I wanna walk in wisdom. We want to be those people. We want to be a church that is wise. You see, much of our weakness and, de and defeat and laziness in our spiritual life can be attributed to the fact that we are not constantly being filled with the Holy Spirit. There's too much of us and not enough of God's Spirit within our lives. And so we can find ourselves weak and lazy or, or defeated in our spiritual walks. The ancient Greek grammar for be filled also indicates two important things. First, the verb is passive. 
So this is not a manufactured experience. It's not something that we can manufacture the work of the Spirit or being filled with the Spirit. I can't do certain things so that I know now that I'm being filled with the Spirit. God is doing that work. He wants to do that work. So not, it's not a manufactured thing. I was in, talking to some of the guys on the worship team this morning, and we were just talking about our lives and what's going on, and, and, and this reminder of Jesus doesn't tell us, hey, maintain, maintain your relationship with me. That's not, that's not what he tells us to do. He just says, abide in me. Hang out with me and I'll hang out with you. Abide in me and I'll abide in you. Don't try to manufacture something. You can't prop up my relationship with you. Just abide. And it's the same for the Holy Spirit and the work. There's nothing that we can do to manufacture the filling of the Holy Spirit. He wants to fill us with his spirit and all we have to do is allow him to do that. Secondly, is that it's imperative so this is not an optional experience. It's not a suggestion. Paul isn't saying, hey, if you want to, be filled with the Spirit. He's saying, no, be filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what wisdom is. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't, don't walk as a fool. Don't be just drunk with wine. Don't be filled with this world, but be filled with the Spirit. The carnal contrast to being filled with the Holy Spirit is to be drunk. The Bible condemns drunkenness without any reservation. He says drunk, being drunk with wine is dissipation. Paul says that drunkenness means that it's a waste of resources that should be submitted to God. And it's not just a monetary resource. It's a mental resource. It's an emotional resource. We waste our mental capacity. We waste our emotional capacity when we get drunk. And Paul here is saying, this is unwise for you, church. It's unwise for you to be drunk with wine. But then he says, what is wise? Well, be filled with the Spirit. Galatians 5.21 says, envy, drunkenness, wild parties, and other sins like these. Let me tell you again, as I have before, that anyone living that sort of life will not inherit the kingdom of God. Drunkenness and the kingdom of God can't coexist together. Because with the kingdom of God comes the fullness of wisdom. And Paul here is saying, to be drunk is full of foolishness. Proverbs 20, verse 1 says, Wine produces mockers. Alcohol leads to brawls. And those led astray by drink cannot be wise. And we should take heed to this exhortation from Proverbs. Now, this isn't a Bible study on whether or not drinking is a sin. But I will encourage you as a church that walking in wisdom means that we're not given to wine. We're not given to alcohol. There's also a great picture of not just being drunk with wine, but being filled with this world. Paul here is saying, don't, don't, don't make your life about being filled with this world. Because it's unwise for us. Another word that we can, another way that we can look at dissipation is to be scattered. 
to disperse. So when we're filled with this world or when we're, when we're drunk with wine, it means that our mind and our hearts are dispersed. They're scattered. We can't have a single mindset. We can't have a single heart for the things of the Lord because these things scatter our minds. These things scatter our hearts. And it's unwise for us to do those things. But the wisdom that God has for us is to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit. Paul contrasts the effect of the Holy Spirit with the state of drunkenness. You see, alcohol is a depressant. It depresses self-control. It depresses a person's wisdom, their balance, and their judgment. And the Holy Spirit has an exactly opposite effect to those things. The Holy Spirit, he's a stimulant. He moves every aspect of our being to have self-control. It's a part of the fruit of the Spirit, self-control. Being filled with the Spirit means that we have self-control. And it enables us to fulfill our calling in Christ Jesus, which we see in the next verses. I don't know about you, but I want to be a wise person. I want wisdom. I want wisdom for, for my family, for my wife. I want wisdom as a man, as a worship leader. I, I want wisdom. And I know that I can't be a wise person if I'm filled with this world. I can't be a wise person if I'm given to drunkenness. And my hope is, as the church, that you would want to be wise so that as people watch your lives, you can give them heavenly wisdom. Because that is how we're going to affect this world that we live in. And he says, continuing in verse 19 and 20 in Ephesians chapter 5, he says here, don't, he says in 18, don't be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. In the 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. The wise life, the Spirit-filled life is marked by worship and gratitude. It is wise for us to be a worshipful people. It is wise for us to have a heart that is full of gratitude. When we are filled with the Spirit, we will have a desire to worship God and to encourage others in their worship of God. The connection with being filled with the Spirit and praise is significant. Those who are filled with the Spirit will naturally praise. And praise is a way that we are filled with the Spirit. As we begin to sing out praises, as we begin to speak out praises unto the Lord, we're reminded of his goodness. We're reminded of his faithfulness. We're reminded that he is in control and we are not. And the Spirit begins to do this work of realigning who we are in the Lord. And so we're called to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This is an amazing thing that we as a church get to be a part of each other's lives, to speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. This variety suggests that God delights in creative and spontaneous worship. The most important place for us to have a melody unto God is within our hearts. And this should be a great encourager for many of us 
Because we don't have to have the best voice. We don't have to feel like we have the most angelic voice or that we can sing, right? Not sing, but we can sing. <laughs> but that the melody comes from our hearts. Even if you don't believe you can sing a beautiful melody with your voice, you can have a beautiful melody in your heart. But let me add this as an encouragement to you. Maybe you don't believe that you have a good voice, but I can tell you this, God is worthy of that voice. Amen. I'll take it. God is worthy of every voice that we have. He's given you that voice, and he is worthy to be praised with that voice, whether you think it's an angelic voice or it sounds like a cat dying. I'm, I didn't mean to hurt any feelings here. God is worthy of that voice praising him because he's given it to you. And so as we gather together in our times of corporate singing together, you give that voice to the Lord because he's worthy of it. A person who is not dissipated or scattered or dispersed, he or she can then speak to other people clearly through several means, the things that we're talking about. The first manner is through psalms. And this Hebrew word is salin. Literally means to pluck strings. The Greek word used is samos, which literally means to move an instrument. Now, musical instruments are one means by which a person can express worship to God. And, and we're, I'm so blessed to be able to serve with guys, serve with girls and women that, that are, have the ability to play music amazingly. And we're blessed as a church that God would bless us with these people. And this same principle is also taught in Colossians 3.16, where believers are encouraged to have the word of Christ richly dwell within them with all wisdom and teaching, admonishing one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, and singing with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Believers are to come before the Lord's presence with thanksgiving and to shout joyfully to him with psalms. We see that in Psalm 95, verse 2. You see, as God has designed the church, he's designed it so that we would come together and encourage one another by singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. The second means described in both Ephesians and Colossians shows that man can also communicate with hymns when filled with the Holy Spirit. The Greek word is humnos, which literally, literally means praise of God. Nehemiah made sure that at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, that the Levites were brought to Jerusalem so that they might celebrate the dedication with gladness, with hymns of thanksgiving, and with songs to the accompaniment of cymbals, harps, and lyres. And we see this in Nehemiah 12, 27. And a hymn is generally directed as praise to God. In Acts 16, it's recorded that Paul and Silas were put into prison as the Spirit led them to, to, to minister. They were imprisoned, they were shackled up, and they were put into jail. And at midnight, it says that they were praying and singing hymns. They were praising God, and the prisoners were listening to them. And if you know this account, we know that as they were worshiping and as they were singing these hymns, these praises unto God, that the earth earth shook and the shackles were loosened and the prison doors were opened 
God did a miraculous thing. And then the jailer was put in a tough position. And so he knew that the penalty for these guys were going to be death. And if they escaped, the penalty that they had was, was going to be given to him. And it was, he was going to kill himself. And this is a really amazing thing when we look at it. Paul and Silas then cried out, do yourself no harm. And because he was so ministered to by the praises of Paul and Silas, his life was changed and he put his trust in the Lord. You see, when we gather together as a church, it's, it's not just to, to, to have this time of music so that we can hype you guys up and yeah, we're gonna get the word and no, it's, it's, it's so that we can encourage one another, we can minister to one another. This jailer was about to kill himself and God miraculously changed his life because he was ministered to by Paul and Silas because they were singing praises to God. And it wasn't about them, it wasn't about the jailer, it was all about God. And his life and his family were miraculously changed because Paul and Silas had it in their heart to sing hymns at midnight. The third type mentioned in Ephesus and Colossians is the spiritual song. Or if you take it literally, it's a taunt that comes directly from the Holy Spirit. In the Greek, it is called pneumaticus oid, a spiritual or supernatural composition. And this could describe music that is given as a gift by the Holy Spirit for the edification of the church body. It's something that comes from the Holy Spirit and it comes from our hearts out to our mouths. It's not anything that we see on the screen, but it's something that we have to say to the Lord because he is so good. Spiritual songs. And this is all part of what God has designed for his church. That as we gather together, we would sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why? Because it's wise for us to do it. It's wise for us to be filled with the Spirit. And if we're filled with the Spirit, these things are going to happen within his church. And then he says, giving thanks always for all things to God. The one who is filled with the Spirit will also be filled with thanksgiving. And so it's easy for us to see here that a complaining heart and the Holy Spirit aren't able to be in unity. A complaining heart and the Spirit of God cannot live in unity. And maybe today you find yourself complaining about all sorts of things, whether it's politics or, or your family or whatever it is. I need to encourage you that the Spirit of God cannot dwell with a complaining heart because the Spirit of God is always going to bring you to a place of glorifying the Father, glorifying Jesus, giving thanks to them. And so it might be that you need to ask the Lord for a fresh filling of his Holy Spirit to radically change that complaining heart. And then in verse 21, back in Ephesians chapter 5, it says that we're to do these things submitting to one another in the fear of God. The wise life, the spirit-filled life, is marked by mutual submission, a mutual submission. When we are filled with the Spirit, it will show by our mutual submission 
to each other. And the submission will be done in the fear of God, not the fear of man. The word submitting here literally means to be under in rank. You know, Jesus would tell us, hey, love the Lord your God, soul, mind, and strength. And then he says, love who? Your neighbor as yourself. The hard part about that is it's easy for us to love ourselves. It's harder to love our neighbors as ourselves. You know how I know that? Because anytime you're driving and a person cuts you off, your response isn't, oh, yeah, here you go. That, that was for you anyways. That, why, why didn't you do that earlier? This was your spot. At least that's not my response. Typically, my response is this. I need to drive up faster, pull up next to them, and give them that stare. You know what you did. But that's not what we're called to do as his church. That's not what wisdom looks like as his church. We're to submit to one another. To, we're to prefer one another above ourselves. It's, it's, it's literally means to be under in rank. It, it is a military word. It speaks of the way that an army is organized among levels of rank. You have generals and colonels and majors and captains and sergeants and privates. There are levels of rank, and you are obligated to respect those in higher rank. This is what Wearsby has to say about it. The idea of submission doesn't have anything to do with someone being smarter or better or more talented. It has to do with a God-appointed order. Anyone who has served in the armed forces knows that rank has to do with order and authority, not with value or ability. It has nothing to do with what you think your value is. We're all valuable in the sight of the Lord. We're all equal at the foot of the cross. And so it has nothing to do with what my opinion is and how much better it is than your opinion has everything to do with, am I going to humble myself to be able to serve you? I've heard it put this way, that unity is accomplished by corporate humility. That we're just here to serve one another, not to make my opinion your opinion, not to think more highly of myself than you, because that's not what Jesus did. The reality of Jesus' heart was he knew the man that would betray him and hours before he was betrayed by that man, he went and he washed his feet. He humbled himself to the lowest point. That's who our Jesus is. And that's who God has called us to, that we're to submit to one another in the fear of God. Wiersbe also says this, we also see from this how important it is to be under rank in the military, they have a name for it when you no longer want to be under rank. They call it mutiny. Just as an army would be in confusion if there were no levels of authority, so society would be in chaos without submission. Our church would look chaotic if we didn't have a heart to submit ourselves to one another. In the fear of God speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. These three types of communication, psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, are then placed in a broader context that they are a, a 
accomplished by singing and making melody with the heart. In the Greek, making melody with the heart is literally cardia, or we get the word cardiac. So literally, God is telling us our heartbeat, our heartbeat should be to sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to one another. That's what your heartbeat should be, church. That as we gather together, this would be our heart's desire, our heartbeat to encourage and edify as we worship the Lord, we begin to edify the church body. The context is further clarified to incorporate an awareness to be always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord. And it's not just some things. It's not just the good things. It's not just the great things. It's all things. In all things, give thanks to the Lord. When we think about the heartbeat, the melody within our heart, it's made with one's very being, our thoughts and our feelings. We're called for worship, church. We're called for worship as we worship the Lord. We're called to worship in the sense that it edifies one another as we sing, as we speak in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's who God has intended us to be within his church body, within the family of God. A worshipful life is a wise life. And so here are a couple, couple words to think about when we think about what we're called for in worship. The first word is constant. If you're taking notes, you can write down constant. Our worship is constant. In his book, Unceasing Worship, Harold M. Best writes this. Worship does not stop and start, despite our notions to the contrary. Once we place an emphasis on specific times, places, and methods, we misunderstand worship's biblical meaning. Worship may ebb and flow, may take on various appearances, and may be intense and ecstatic or quiet and commonplace, but it is continuous. When we sin, worship does not stop. It changes directions and reverts back to what it once was, even if only for an instant. Repentance, the turning from and returning to, is the only solution. You see, our worship never stops. We have been created as worshipers. And so before we came to this saving knowledge and relationship with Jesus, we really were worshiping ourselves until the point where we humbled ourselves to ask God to forgive us of our sins. Our life was all about us. And we were self-worshippers. And now that Jesus is living within us, we become Jesus worshipers. And so when there is sin or when there is compromise, worship doesn't stop. It just becomes redirected back to what it once was. And God is calling us, if we're living a life full of sin today, to repent and to return and to do the first works where it's just about 
humbling ourselves and receiving the forgiveness and the love of Jesus Christ today. In the book of Revelation, chapter 2, it speaks of the same church that we're talking about in Ephesians to the church in Ephesus. This is what Jesus has to say. I know your works and your labor and your patience and how you cannot bear them which are evil and you have tried them which say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars and have borne and have patience and for my namesake have labored and have not fainted. Nevertheless, I have this against you because you have left your first love You've left your first love. He didn't say you've lost your first love. Left and lost are two different things. This church in Ephesus, they knew where God's love was and they left it. They directed their worship somewhere else. They knew exactly where it was and they redirected their affections to something else. And so what's the remedy? He says, repent, and return and do the first works. Repent, return from where you've fallen and do the first works. Make it about Jesus. Make your worship about Jesus and not yourself. And so our worship is constant. Another way to look at it, we see in 1 John 4.19. We love because he first loved us. Everything we do is just a response to the love that God has initiated for our lives. And so our worship is constant. The next word is awe. A healthy worship life means that we continually have an awe and wonder of who God is and all that he does and allows in our lives. C.S. Lewis said this, a man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship him, then a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling darkness on the wall of his cell. When we begin to lose this awe and amazement and wonder of who God is, our worship life begins to suffer. When we forget that we were the one that Jesus left the 99 for, we begin to lose the awe and wonder of who Jesus is. When we don't think of ourselves as the prodigal child that would return, that Jesus would open his arms to and welcome back home, we begin to lose the awe and the wonder of his love towards us. When we forget about the pit that God has saved us from, we begin to lose this awe and wonder. Even if we forget, even in the most the smallest things, like the past couple weeks, my ankle has been jacked up. Like last weekend I led worship, I was sitting down just because I couldn't stand on it, couldn't put any pressure on it. And, and so I, I went through this whole routine of icing and compressing and, and elevating and resting and taking ibuprofen. And Saturday, yesterday morning I woke up and the pain was gone. And I started to think about, man, it was probably the ice. It was probably the compression. It was the ibuprofen I was taking. And God quickly reminded me, hey, I did that. I, I'm, I, he could easily have used those things, 
but I can't forget, I can't lose this awe of, man, Jesus did this for me. It's Jesus who did it. He might have used medicine. Maybe, maybe 2017 was really hard for you. There was a lot of sickness and don't forget, God could have used medicine, but it was still him. And when we begin to lose this awe and this wonder, our worship life suffers. And when our worship life suffers, our church life suffers. We can also remember this in James 1, 1 verse 17, that every good and perfect gift, it comes from the Father of lights. It all comes from him. So we have to have a, an awe and wonder for a healthy worship life. The next word is lament. Lament. So often in our hurts and pains and our confusion and difficulties, we tell ourselves, how can I worship God when I don't feel like it? How can I worship God when I feel pain and I feel heartbreak? And it's actually the opposite of how we should feel and think. The Bible says that God is close to the broken heart and saves such that have a contrite spirit. We see that in Psalm 34, 18. It's something that we don't like to practice within the church because when we come to church, we don't want anybody to know that we're struggling. We don't want to seem like we don't have everything together. And when we do that, we only fool ourselves and we only cheat ourselves from really receiving what God will want to do in our lives for that moment. We're to carry each other's burdens. Just as we're to submit to one another in the fear of God, we're also called to carry each other's burdens. And too often, I'm guilty of this, too often we come to church and we, we don't, we don't want to get everybody else messy with our mess. But here's something to encourage you. We've all brought in messes. And we've all brought in difficulties. And so let's carry our burdens together. Let's speak to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That I might edify you, that you might edify me but we need to practice coming to the Lord. This isn't about complaining. About 50% of the Psalms are all laments. We often call these laments, or we can also call them Psalms of supplication in which the psalmist offer a cry for help and a description of their troubles, but then strive to work through a, to a statement of trust. God, despite all that's happening, I still trust you. And to make petition for deliverance and vow praise to God for that anticipated deliverance. These laments combine a realistic acknowledgement of difficult circumstances and troubled emotions with hard-won expressions of trust and praise. If we can't be real with the Lord, who can we be real with? We're called to, to carry our burdens, to lay them down at Jesus' feet, to know that he cares for us. And this is something that needs to be practiced within our lives to cast our cares upon the Lord because he cares for us. He already knows it. And so, 
to have a healthy and a wise worship life means that we're called to bring our laments to him. You can read Psalm 54 and Psalm 88. These give great examples of what a lament looks like. These songs aren't complaints, but are a real outpour of expression to a God who knows them and hearts and a heart's desire to put fully their trust in the God who is faithful. The next word is learn, if you're writing notes. As you might already see, I'm spelling out called. But the next word is learn. Our worship grows in our growth of knowledge of who the Lord is. In other words, our worship life is only as deep as our knowledge of who he is. You want to grow in your worship life? Know Jesus. The more that we know Jesus, the more that we understand his love for us, the more that's going to cause our hearts to cry out to him in adoration, in praising him, in giving him our affections. Jesus said this in Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. We all want rest. Jesus says here, you can come to me and I'll give you rest, but this is how we're going to get it. You need to learn from me. These heavy things that we're carrying, these things that are, that are weighing us down, God wants to give us rest from those things, but we get rest from learning from him. He says, put my yoke upon you. There's still something that God would do to then have to be able to direct our lives. That's what a yoke is. To give us direction. To put us in the right alignment of what he wants to do but we have to learn from him. Too often, we want rest from God, but we don't want to learn anything. Our worship life grows with the knowledge that we have of him. In John chapter six, Jesus is teaching to those following him, and he shares with them some hard things. He tells them, you, you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And those following him, some, would, some said, this is hard for us to understand. And one of the saddest statements in the Bible, John chapter 6, verse 66, many of his disciples walked back, and it says they walked with him no more. As he's teaching them, they say, this is too hard for me to understand. Sometimes in our lives, God is telling us and teaching us some really hard and difficult things, and it might be something that we're learning because we're going through it. And I love the response as he turns to the 12, Jesus does. He asks them, do you want to go away also? And I love Peter's response. Peter says, where else would we go? Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. And then it says this. He says, we have come to believe and know. They have learned who Jesus is by spending time with him by living their lives with him. And so even though Jesus was saying, teaching them a really hard thing, 
their response is, Jesus, where else would we go? You have the words of life. We don't understand this. I don't, I don't get it. I'm a little confused, but, but I know who you are, and I'm going to trust you. It's not about what I don't know. It's about what I do know. And I've seen your miracles. I've seen you do work in people's lives. And so it's not about what I don't know, but it's about what I know. And as we learn and as we grow in who God is, it causes our lives to be a worshipful life. The next word is experience. Worship is an experience. It's not a religious thing. It's a responsive thing. We don't have to sing, but we get to. We don't have to raise our hands, but guess what? We get to. We don't have to worship the Lord. We get to. It's not a religious thing. God doesn't tell us, do these things so that you can be a faithful person. No, we get to do them as being faithful in him. And so I want to share with you a couple words. There's more words, but there's a couple words that I really want us to to think about as we gather together corporately for worship and as we respond in our times of corporate worship and singing. The first word is this. It's yada, Y-A-D-A-H. And it's a verb. This means to show reverence or praise with extended hands. And so why do we raise hands? Well, it's biblical. The word pictures associated with the root words for this type of praise is shooting an arrow or throwing a rock. It literally means to extend the hands or to shoot an arrow. And so when we lift our hands in praise to God, when we lift our hands in our corporate times of worship, or maybe by yourself as you're worshiping the Lord, you are literally throwing praise to God. And so this is why we raise our hands in worship. Psalm 42, verse 5. We can, you can write that down. At the dedication of the temple in 2 Chronicles 7, it uses this expression of praise. The Levites blowing the trumpets and calling everyone to worship. And the praise that everyone is expressing is through standing and lifting hands. It's a responsive thing. God, you were so good that I, there's, I can't, there's nothing I can do but lift my hands to you in surrender and humility to praise you. The, the second word is the word barak, B-A-R-A-K. And this is a type of praise that we commonly, commonly see around altars. It means to kneel down. It means to bow low as a sign of adoration and reverence. And it carries with it the idea of humbling yourself to a place that is lower than the recipient of your worship. That we bow before the Lord in our worship. And this is one of the things that maybe it's really uncomfortable for you to have to bow. And yet God, he literally tells us in Psalm 95, verse 6, it expresses this idea literally. Come, let us worship. Let us bow down. There's something that happens within our hearts when we take this practice 
to just bow before the Lord. There's something that our heart learns when we bow in humility before an all-powerful God. And it's something that we should practice as a church, as an expression unto the Lord. Now, physically, some of you may not be able to do it. And God understands that. Again, it comes from the heart. But for some of you, God, as we respond in worship today, God is going to call you to bow. And there's going to be this friction. And that friction only means that there's a lack of submission to the Lord in your life. Same with raising hands. It's hard for me to reconcile that many thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people can gather together in a stadium for a team that isn't really that good this year. <laughs> and they're so passionate and they're so joyous. And so they're, they're screaming out, they're clapping their hands. And then, you know, when the church gathers together, it's crossed arms and a bewildered look at the screen. It's hard for me to reconcile those things. Maybe it's not even going to a game, but at home, you're like you're yelling at the TV like the TV can hear you. And yet when we gather together as a church, we don't want to do or say anything. When God is way more deserving than a football team here in Denver. Worship is an experience. The last word is the word tehillah, T-E-H-I-L-L-A-H. And this is praise, but it's praise that is demanded by qualities or deeds or attributes of God. This type of praise is singing, but not just any type of singing. It's the singing that bubbles up from our hearts. It's a spontaneous type of singing. These songs are unrehearsed and unprepared. They are straight to God. As we're singing corporately, there's something that starts bubbling up in your heart, and you just have to sing it out to the Lord. And this is literally in Psalm 22, verse 3. You know, we say it all the time. God is enthroned in the praises of our people. But this is literally the praise that God is enthroned in. This unrehearsed, spontaneous praise that comes from our hearts. That is the praise that God, that God is enthroned in. It's not some rehearsed thing. It's not something that we're reading. Although God can use those things to, to stir up within our hearts a praise unto him but it's the spontaneous, unrehearsed things that just come from our hearts that Jesus is enthroned in. So worship is an experience. And the last word is designed. We are designed to be worshipers. Again, before we had a relationship with Jesus, we were worshiping ourselves. And as Jesus takes control of our lives, we begin to worship him. God's desire for our lives is that our attention and our affections would be toward him. All of his creation worships him. In Psalm 96, 11 through 12, it says, Let the heavens rejoice, let the earth be glad, let the sea resound and all that is in it. Let the fields be jubilant and everything in them. Let all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Isaiah 43, 20 through 21 says, The wild animals honor me, the jackals and the owls, because I provide water in the wilderness and streams in the wasteland. I provide water uh, uh, to give drink to my people, my chosen, the people I formed for myself, that they may proclaim 
my praise. His creation worships him. We're designed to be worshipers. We also see in the passage in Luke 19 that as those who were following Jesus began to praise and worship him for all the wonderful miracles they had seen, there were, there were Pharisees amongst the crowd and they told Jesus to rebuke these people. And Jesus' response to them was this, if they kept quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. If they kept quiet, there'd be a bunch of rock concerts going on. God's creation worships him. It cannot be silent. And so the beloved, the bride, needs to be worshipers. Because if, if the trees can sing, why can't we? If the seas would roar and resound in praise to the Lord, why wouldn't we? Jesus came so that we, people, might be saved. He died on the cross for us, for people, for me and you. And it should cause within us a great desire to give him glory and praise and shouts of adoration and worship and bowing and raising of hands because all of creation worships him. If we kept silent, there'd be some awkward walks around hearing the rocks crying out in praise to the Lord. Psalm 92, one through six says this, it is good to praise the Lord and make music to your name, O Most High, proclaiming your love in the morning and your faithfulness at night. To the music of the 10 string lyre and, on, and the melody of the harp, for you make me glad by your deeds, Lord. I sing for joy at what your hands have done. How great are your works, Lord. How profound your thoughts. Senseless people do not know. Fools do not understand. Worship in our lives is wise. A life full of worship is wise for the believer. It's what we're called for. So as the worship team comes back up and notes we have this time to, to corporately sing together. Let's respond. Maybe for some, it's, it's to, to bow today, that you, would, that you would just bow. Maybe you need to come up and, and you need to bow today. I would encourage you to just do it. Maybe you've never raised your hands to the Lord and God is calling you to do that today. Then surrender in that way. Why is it good for us to worship? Well, it brings us to a place of right perspective. As we begin to sing and as we begin to remember who God is, it brings our lives back to the right perspective and knowing that even if we become faithless, he remains faithful. Why is it good for us to worship? Well, we begin to draw close to the Lord when we worship. Why is it good for us to worship? Well, Paul would tell us in Ephesians that this is what wisdom is, to be worshipful. Worship allows us to edify the body of Christ by speaking and singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs that as we gather together, God would do a work within his church as we have this life full of worship. And when, why is it good for us to worship? It's good for us to worship because Jesus becomes the center of our lives when we worship. We're called for worship, but maybe today the first step to true worship isn't raising your hands. It's not bowing to your knees. It's, it's bowing your heart to the Lord. It's surrendering your life to the Lord. God is spirit. 
the Bible says. And those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. And so to worship God, you must be born of the spirit. You must be born again. And if you've never surrendered your life to the Lord, I want to tell you today that Jesus loves you. He left glory. He chose pain to love you by dying on a cross. But the promise is this, that as he was buried, three days later, he rose again, conquering sin and death, conquering your sin and your death. And today you can have this full relationship with him if you would just surrender. The first step to a worshipful life for you is to surrender your life to him. And as church, as we pray, you can, you can just say this prayer. You can say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I confess with my mouth that you are Lord. And Jesus, I believe in my heart that God raised you from the dead. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse my life. Help me to live a life that is wise and full of worship. And God, I know that if anyone prayed that in sincerity, in heart, I know that they're saved, that you would save them. And so God, as we continue in our time of gathered, corporate time of your saints gathered together, Lord, I pray that our worship, Lord, would be exalting to you, be honoring to you, that we would do what it is that you've called us to do that you'd be enthroned in the praises of your people, God, today. It's in your name we pray. Amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.